We're going to get started, and we're in Matthew chapter 7, and we're going to pick up in verse 13. We started this last week, but we did not finish, so we will finish that tonight, and then we'll move on into uh, verses 16 to 19. So let's read Matthew 7. We'll pick up in verse 13. There it says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. For the gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles are they. So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. But he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name? and in your name cast out demons, and in your name perform many miracles? Then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for our time to meet together tonight, and Lord, to study your word. And Lord, how it is that you have blessed us, Lord, with these opportunities uh, to gather, uh, to gather frequently, Lord, with your people, Lord, to open your word, uh, Lord, and to be taught by your spirit. And Father, we do pray that tonight you would help us, Lord, to see and understand the implications of, Lord, how few there are who will be saved. Lord, that we would strive to enter by the narrow uh, gate and that, Lord, we would not be disheartened uh, when it seems that there are so few who truly believe. But, Lord, that we would see that this is the experience of all of the righteous, Lord, in every generation. Lord, that there's always, uh, only been a few uh, who believe in every generation. Uh, and so, Lord, may we uh, be faithful and persevere and follow the example of those who have gone before us, Lord, who did not give up and who did not lose heart. Uh, so, Lord, we pray that you be with us tonight, and Lord, help us as we study your word. And it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Okay, so last week we began uh, Matthew chapter 7. We talked through verses 13 to 14, uh, which is teaching that there are few who are going to be saved in contrast to the many who are going to be unsaved. Few who go to heaven in contrast with the many who go to hell, right? That's what he says there, that it is a narrow gate that leads to life. And he's urging us to enter through that narrow gate. In the corresponding passage in Luke, he says, strive to enter by the narrow gate. So it is a narrow gate. It is a hard way. It is a small way that leads to life. And there are very few who find it. But it is a wide and broad way, an easy way that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter in that way. This is what the Bible teaches. This is what Jesus Christ taught. <clears throat> so Jesus was very narrow-minded. When people say we shouldn't be narrow-minded, we shouldn't be too dogmatic, we shouldn't be too strict. Well, isn't that what Jesus is doing here? I mean, he's using the very word narrow, right? Saying enter by the narrow way. So he's very narrow-minded, he's very strict and dogmatic, 
when it comes to faith, when it comes to repentance, when it comes to these things that are necessary to enter into the kingdom of God. And again, in terms of the contrast between the righteous and the wicked, the righteous are few, the wicked are many. This also will be true in terms of the contrast between true Christians and fake Christians. True Christians, those who proclaim to be believers, that, that's what we'll get into, probably not this week, but into next week, right? Many who say, Lord, Lord, many who claim to be Christians in contrast to few who are true followers of Christ. Now, again, the, the importance of this is that we have to test ourselves and examine ourselves to see whether or not we are in the faith, that we have to be very vigilant. We have to persevere. We have to have endurance. We cannot give up, right? But we have to strive to enter in this way and not believe the lies of the devil that it is very easy to go to heaven. This is what is commonly popularly believed, that it is very easy to go to heaven and it is very hard and difficult to go to hell. But that's not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches the opposite. So we dealt with that last week. And then we started in on looking at various places in the Bible that teach the doctrine of the remnant. That in every generation, there will be few believers in contrast to many unbelievers or few righteous in contrast to the many wicked. That in terms of population, in terms of percentages, it'll always be a smaller percentage who are true believers and children of God in contrast to the world, to the wicked, to the children of the devil. And that we should not be shocked and surprised that this would be our own experience in our generation. That it's very hard to find a faithful man, right? Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find, right? When the Son of Man comes, will he find faith? on the earth? Will he find any who are faithful? Right. This is how rare it is to find a truly faithful person, a man who has true faith in Christ. Right. And when we experience this, we might begin to think that there's something wrong with us, that we are uh, deformed, right? that we are uh, being too narrow-minded, that we're being too dogmatic, that we're being too harsh and too strict. This is what people will say. So this is for our comfort, right? When we are experiencing the realities of the Christian life, the realities of what Jesus is teaching here, that it is a narrow way and there are few who find it, and it is a broad and easy way and there are many who go therein, right? So that we won't be discouraged and think that there's something wrong with us, right? This should be our experience, and this is what the Bible teaches. So we begin to look at passages in the Bible where this reality of the few who enter into the kingdom of God in contrast to the many who enter into hell is seen throughout the Bible and then that this will also be true in our own generation. This is the way it is in every generation. So we started that last week and we began with Noah, Noah's generation. How many were saved during Noah's generation? Only eight. Only eight were on the ark and then even of the eight, not all of them were true believers. Right? We know for sure one of them was an unbeliever, Ham. So eight people in contrast to all of those who perished in the flood. And their perishing in the flood was an example of 
the eternal fires of hell, of eternal judgment and eternal condemnation. So it's not that uh, God killed many believers, but just saved Noah. No, Noah and his family, they were the only ones saved, showing that the rest of the world were all unbelievers, were all wicked people. So there was only a few, very small, a very small percentage, less than we have gathered here, right, in Noah's day, in contrast to the many wicked who perished in the flood, and those could have been millions and millions of people, right? Because of the length of the earth, how long it had been, the length of life at that time, the number of children that people had, we're talking about millions of people in contrast to the few, the eight, who were saved. Then we looked at the wilderness generation, those who were brought out of Egypt by Moses. And the majority of those who were brought out of Egypt by Moses were unbelievers who died in their sin. They perished in the wilderness because according to Hebrews 3 and 4, they had an evil, unbelieving heart that led them to fall away from the living God. And according to Jude verse 5, their falling in the wilderness is an example of eternal condemnation and eternal judgment. So they were unbelievers. There were many unbelievers, many wicked, in contrast with just a few righteous ones, like Moses, like Aaron, like Miriam, like Joshua, like Caleb. A few of them, in contrast to the many who were unbelievers. Then we looked in Judges, Judges chapter 2, and saw that in the time of the Judges, which spanned many generations, several hundreds of years, what was true consistently during that time is that there were very few believers. Very few, the judges, uh, and a few here and there, but for the most part, they were unbelievers and they were turning away from the Lord. So that's three generations in. Noah, the wilderness generation, and then the judges, and that actually would span multiple generations, but we'll count it just as one. So we're going to pick up then with our survey from the Bible and show more examples of the remnant always being the case, okay? The next one would be Psalm 12. Psalm 12, and this would be during the time of David. During the time of David, this is what the prophet says. Psalm 12, verse 1. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases to be. For the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. So there, David, in commenting on his own generation and his own experience, is crying out for help uh, from the Lord because the godly man ceases to be and the faithful are disappearing from among the sons of men. So does that sound like there are Many, 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 many faithful people and just one or two unfaithful. No, doesn't it sound the opposite? There are many, many unfaithful and there are just a few who are faithful to the Lord. That's what David is relating and this is what he is saying. So during David's time, this is what he experienced as well, right? That he uh, was faithful. There were a few other faithful ones around him, but there were many unfaithful so that he could even say that they are disappearing and they cease to be on the earth. Next, 1 Kings chapter 19. What about Elijah? 
1 Kings chapter 19. And we'll pick up in verse 9. First Kings 19 verse 9 says, Then he, Elijah, came there to a cave and lodged there. And behold, the word of the Lord came to him, and he said to him, What are you doing here, Elijah? He said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. So he said, Go forth and stand on the mountain before the Lord. And behold, the Lord was passing by, and a great and strong wind was rending the mountains and breaking in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake. But the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire. But the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, a sound of a gentle blowing. When Elijah heard it, he wrapped his face in his mantle and went out and stood in the entrance of the cave. And behold, a voice came to him and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? Then he said, I have been very zealous for the Lord, the God of hosts. For the sons of Israel have forsaken your covenant, torn down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I alone am left, and they seek my life to take it away. The Lord said to him, Go, return on your way to the wilderness of Damascus, and when you have arrived, you shall anoint Hazael, king of over Aram. And Jehu, the son of Nimchi, you shall anoint king over Israel. And Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel-Melahoah, you shall anoint as the prophet in your place. It shall come about that the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael, Jehu, shall put to death. And the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu, Elisha, shall put to death. Yet I will leave seven thousand in Israel, all the knees that have not bowed to Baal, and every mouth that has not kissed him. So here, Elijah, his own experience was that there were very few who were faithful, right? To the point that he thought he was the only one, that he was the only one left in the whole land of Israel, right? We're not talking about the land of Babylon. We're not talking about the land of Egypt. We're not talking about Japan or China. We're talking about the land of Israel, the only place in the world at this time where you're going to find a true believer is this people, who have the word of God, who have the worship of God, and yet among Israel, Elijah says, he has been zealous for the Lord, but the children of Israel have not been, but they have killed the prophets. They have demolished the altars, and I alone am left, and they're trying to kill me, is what Elijah says. So that was his own experience, that to him it appeared that he was the only believer, the only faithful one in all of Israel. Now, God affirms to him that, no, this isn't the case at all. There are 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal and who have not kissed him. So there were 7,000 who were faithful in Israel during that time. But 7,000, in contrast to millions who were unfaithful, right? Millions who were unfaithful. So not 7,000 out of 8,000, not 7,000 out of 10,000, not even 7,000 out of 14,000, but 7,000 likely out of millions and millions of people who had not bowed the knee to Bell. So a very small remnant. God still has his people there. They are few and far between, but they are few in contrast to the wicked. Okay. Next, 
1 Kings 22. 1 Kings 22, and we'll pick up in verse 5. This would be Micaiah. And here, in contrast to the prophets, to the false prophets. True prophets in contrast to false prophets. 1 Kings chapter 22, verse 5. Moreover, Jehoshaphat said to the king of Israel, Please inquire first for the Lord, for the word of the Lord. Then the king of Israel gathered the prophets together, about four hundred men, and said to them, Shall I go against Ramoth Gilead to battle, or shall I refrain? And they said, Go up, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. But Jehoshaphat said, Is there not yet a prophet of the Lord here that we may inquire of him? The king of Israel said to Jehoshaphat, There is yet one man by whom we may inquire of the Lord, but I hate him because he does not prophesy good concerning me, but evil. He is Micaiah, the son of Imlah. But Jehoshaphat said, Let not the king say so. Then the king of Israel called an officer and said, Bring quickly Micaiah, the son of Imlah. Now the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, were sitting each on his throne, arrayed in their robes, at the threshing floor at the entrance of the gate of Samaria. And all the prophets were prophesying before them. Then Zedekiah, the son of Chanana, made horns of iron for himself and said, Thus says the Lord, With these you will gore the Arameans until they are consumed. All the prophets were prophesying, thus saying, Go up to Ramoth-Gilead and prosper, for the Lord will give it into the hand of the king. Then the messenger who went to summon Micaiah spoke to him, saying, Behold, now the words of the prophets are uniformly favorable to the king. Please let your word be like the word of one of them and speak favorably. But Micaiah said, As the Lord lives, what the Lord says to me, that I shall speak. So here it's 400 to 1. Right, 400 to 1. We could say 400 to 2 because Jehoshaphat is a righteous king, a righteous man as well, though he is aligned here with a wicked man and he shouldn't have done that. So in this context, though, you have 400 false prophets in contrast to one true prophet. So many and few. One, right? It is a broad way that leads to destruction and there are many who go therein and it is a narrow way that leads to life and there are few who find it. The few being Micaiah, the one, in contrast to the many who were unbelievers. Okay, Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 10. Isaiah chapter 10 and verse 20. Isaiah 10, 20 says, now in that day, the remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return, the remnant of Jacob, to the mighty God. For though your people, O Israel, may be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant within them will return. A destruction is determined overflowing with righteousness. For a complete destruction, one that is, de is decreed, the Lord God of hosts will execute in the midst of the whole land. So there, it is only a remnant that will return to the Lord. Right? A remnant in contrast to what? The sands of the sea. Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, 
meaning many of them, right? Isn't there many grains of sand on the seashore? Innumerable, so many that you can't count. This is what the people are like, the number of them, like the sand of the sea. But how many will return to the Lord? Only a remnant. And a remnant is a small group, a very small group in contrast to the many who were unbelievers. So Isaiah's generation, this is what Isaiah experienced, okay? How about Jeremiah? Jeremiah chapter 3. Jeremiah chapter 3, verse 11. Jeremiah 3, 11. And the Lord said to me, Faithless Israel has proved herself more righteous than treacherous Judah. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look upon you in anger, for I am gracious, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your iniquity, that you have transgressed against the Lord your God, and have scattered your favors to the strangers under every green tree. And you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Return, O faithless sons, declares the Lord. For I am a master to you, and I will take you one from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. So here, the situation in Israel and Judah. Again, not Babylon, not Egypt. Israel and Judah, the people who have access to the word of God, access to salvation, access to the worship of God. Only these people have it. And yet, what is true of them? They are so bad, so rotten, so corrupt, that God defines them as faithless and treacherous. These are the words that describe the people because as a whole, on a, on a whole, if you define them, this is what is true of them. They are faithless and they are treacherous. Now, it doesn't mean that every single person in Israel and every single person in Judah is faithless and treacherous. Jeremiah wasn't. Jeremiah was a faithful man. He was not a treacherous man. But people like Jeremiah were few and far between. What was true of them as a whole was that they were faithless and they were treacherous. And then when God brings them back and forgives them of their sins, how many is he going to take? One from a city two from a family, one here, one there, a few here, a few there, not all of them, not thousands, not millions of them. That's not going to be the case. A few here and a few there. That's what the Lord is going to do. What about Jesus? What about Jesus's ministry? Well, we've read in Matthew chapter 7, 13 to 14, enter through the narrow gate. Enter through the narrow gate. The gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction and there are many who enter through it. The gate is small and the way is narrow that leads to life and there are few who find it. This is what Jesus taught in his own generation. Also, Matthew 22. Matthew 22, verse 14. Matthew twenty two fourteen, for many are called, but few are chosen, right? Many are called. Here by call, he means they hear the preaching of the gospel. 
they hear the outward call to repent of sin and to believe in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of sins. They hear that, but many of them hear it and yet they don't believe it. In contrast to the few who do believe. And the reason the few believe is because of what? They were chosen by God. Many are called, but few are chosen, elected by God for salvation so that they actually respond favorably to the preaching of the word of God. So there, Jesus is saying, and this, isn't this what we see in his own ministry? He, did he not preach? He sowed the seed far and wide. He preached to many, many people, but there were only a few who believed in him. In contrast to the thousands and thousands who heard his gracious words. Okay, also John chapter 6, an example of that. John chapter 6, and verse 66. John 6, 66. As a result of this, many of his disciples withdrew and were not walking with him anymore. So Jesus said to the twelve, You do not want to go away also, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have words of life. And we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered them, Did I myself not choose you, the twelve, and yet one of you is a devil? Now he meant Judas, the son of Simon Iscariot, for he, one of the twelve, was going to betray him. This is after John chapter 6, the sermon of John chapter 6, the miracle of John chapter 6. And this is a great sermon that Jesus preached, accompanied by a mighty miracle that Jesus performed the day before. And even with a miracle, even with Jesus preaching the gospel to them, most of the disciples, what did they do? They walked away from him. They withdrew and they no longer followed him anymore. And by disciple, it doesn't mean true disciple. These are false disciples, false converts, and then they manifest that they're false because they withdrew and they no longer walk with him. To the point that all that is left are the 12. And he asked them, are you going to go away as well? And then even among the 12, one of them was a devil. So this is Jesus' own experience as well in what he's doing. And he's doing miracles. Miracles so many that... They don't even record all of them. There are so many. So many words that it's not even enough books in the world to contain all that Jesus said and all that he did. And yet he didn't have thousands upon thousands upon thousands of followers like the modern day celebrity preachers today do. They're able to do it without miracles, but Jesus couldn't do it with miracles. What's the difference between Jesus and them? They're not preaching the way Jesus preached. Because if they taught the Bible the way Jesus taught it, their disciples would all walk away as well. That's the difference between the two. Okay, next. What about the Apostle Paul? After the day of Pentecost. Okay, yes, this is all Old Testament before the day of Pentecost. But after the day of Pentecost, right, we're in the new covenant. Right? It's, there's going to be many people who believe in the new covenant. This is going to be the way it is. But no, this is not the case at all. Romans chapter 11. Romans 11. 
verse 1. This is after the day of Pentecost, and notice what the Apostle Paul teaches. Romans 11.1, 1, I say then, has God rejected his people? Has he? God has not rejected his people, has he? May it never be. For I too am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people, whom he foreknew. Or do you not know what the scripture says in the passage about Elijah, how he pleads with God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have torn down your altars, and I alone am left, and they are seeking my life. But what is the divine response to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. In the same way, then, there has also come to be, at the present time, a remnant according to God's gracious choice. But if it is by grace, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace is no longer grace. So here, in talking about his own generation and the few Jews who believed the gospel, both during the time of Christ and after the time of Christ, during the time of the apostles, right? He's answering this question, has God rejected his people? Meaning, has God rejected Israel completely so that there are not any believers amongst the Jews, amongst the Israelites? And he says, no, of course not. May this never be the case. And then who is the example of a believer amongst the Israelites? Himself. I'm an Israelite, he says. He's a descendant of Abraham. He's a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people. Then he goes back to Elijah and brings up what happened in Elijah's day and is applying that to his own generation. Just as in Elijah's day, there was a remnant. God kept for himself 7,000 who had not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time, he says, there's a remnant chosen by grace. It was that way in Elijah's day, and it's this way in my day, is what the Apostle Paul is saying. And then what's going to be true in our day, in the present day? It's going to be the same thing. There's a remnant chosen by grace, according to God's gracious choice. That's back to what we said in Matthew twenty-two fourteen. Many are called, few are chosen. God's gracious choice. This is what makes the difference between the one and the other. And God has chosen in every generation to save a few in contrast to the many who are unbelievers. Okay, one other passage, Acts chapter 17. That was amongst the Jews. We might say, oh, well, that's the Jews, but not the Gentiles, right? Not the Gentiles. The Gentiles, many people are going to believe. Acts 17, 32. This is the Apostle Paul preaching at Athens to Gentiles. Did all of the Athenians believe the gospel when they heard it from the Apostle Paul? No. Acts 17, 32. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some began to sneer, but others said, We shall hear you again concerning this. So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysus, the Areopagite, and a woman named Demarius, and others with them. So he preached to many people there. Some sneered at him. They mocked him. Others said, we'll hear you again on this. Right? They maybe had some curiosity or interest. And then there were a few who joined him. And then we have Dionysus and 
a woman named Demarius, and then a few others as well. So here, a few believers in contrast to the many who rejected it. Okay, so these are the examples. Uh, Ten places in the Bible where Matthew 7, 13 to 14 is experienced either by a prophet, by our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, or by one of the holy apostles, where there were few who were saved in contrast to the many who were unbelievers. And then also in this, many of these examples are within Israel. So we're not talking about a few Christians in contrast to many Muslims, but we're even talking about a few faithful believers in contrast to many false believers, right? Wasn't that the case in Jesus's day amongst the Jewish people? They weren't worshiping idols. They weren't worshiping Baal. They all claimed to be children of Abraham. That's what Jesus is constantly having to say to them, as is John the Baptist. Do not say for yourself, we have Abraham as our father, right? Isn't that what John the Baptist was preaching to them? You're claiming these things. You're claiming to be children of God. You're claiming to be believers, but don't say these things because you're not saying them in the right way. So it's not only in contrast to the idol worshipers, but even amongst those who claim to be Christians, claim to be followers of God, there were only a few who were true believers. In this end, we, we went through 10 different examples from the Bible, different generations, some of them multiple generations, to prove this. Yet, so few people believe this, right? It's not going to be the case in our day, right? In our day, we have churches with 40 or 50,000 members in them. Isn't this true? Aren't there churches like that with thousands and thousands and thousands of people in these churches? And every single one of them is a true Christian. Every single one is a believer. And the ministry is great. It's wonderful. Everything they do is good and great. The pastor is sincere. He's a wonderful man and he loves God and he loves the people. We have fraudulent youth camps like Falls Creek right down the road here in Oklahoma. The largest it boasts as being the largest youth camp in the universe. It really is, actually, because it's the largest in the world, probably, which would make it the largest in the universe. And every year, thousands upon thousands of children, of youth, go down there. And there are hundreds or thousands of decisions every single year. And every decision is legitimate. Everything is good. Everything is sincere. It is all wonderful and do not even begin to question whether it's not. And if you do, then you are a troublemaker. We have a church on every street corner in Oklahoma, and every church is good. All the people are true. They're all sincere Christians. Well, wasn't there a synagogue in every town, every village that Jesus visited? Were they all sincere? Were they all good, faithful followers of God? Was he received kindly at those synagogues? What about the synagogue in his hometown? How did they receive him in Luke chapter 4 when he preached his sermon there? They wanted to take him and throw him over a cliff. And they sought to do so if it would not have been God protecting him and delivering him from their murderous plots. So we should not be surprised by these things. That there are going to be few believers, few true churches in contrast to the many. It has always been this case 
and it will always be this case. Though the number of the sons of Israel be as the sand of the sea, yet only a remnant will be saved. Romans chapter 9, verse 27. Now, some people will say, well, aren't we limiting God? Doesn't this <laughs> limit God and it, it makes God look weak and ineffective that there's going to be so few who are saved, that there's going to be so many unbelievers? Well, yes, in every generation, there are few in contrast to the many who are unbelievers. But first, we should see the power of God, not in that every single person believes, but in what God does to those who do believe, the change, the change in the few in contrast to the wickedness of the many. How it is that God in his power can take a man dead in his trespasses and sins, a worthless man, a thief like Zacchaeus, and turn him into what he becomes. How he can take men like that and turn them into uh, trophies, vessels of grace, of mercy, to show his power. So we should judge the power of God, not by the multitudes that believe, but by what God does in those who do believe. But then also, if you take the remnant in every generation and you combine them all together, what do you have? Rome, uh, Revelation chapter 7. Revelation chapter 7. And this is the fulfillment of the promise made to Abraham in Genesis chapter 15. When God tells him to look at the stars of the sky and see if you can count them, and your descendants will be more than the stars of the sky. Re Revelation 7, verse 9. After these things I looked, and behold, a great multitude, which no one could count, from every nation and all tribes and peoples and tongues, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white robes and palm branches, were in their hand. And they cry out with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. So there, the remnant in the end, if you combine them all together in every generation, beginning with Adam till the end of the world, it is a multitude so great that no one can count them. And they are from every nation, tribe, people, and tongue. And they are standing before the throne, clothed in white, palm branches in their hands, crying out, praising God, for the salvation that he has given to them, right? To his people. Okay, so there you go. That's the remnant, the doctrine of the remnant from uh, multiple examples uh, from the Old Testament, from the New Testament. And this is what we should expect in our own day. So if you have any idea, uh, any, uh, if you have any thoughts that we're gonna have a church of 2000 people Get it out of your mind. It's not going to happen. It's not going to happen, folks. If you think we're going to have a church of 100 people, it's probably not going to happen, right? But that's okay. What we want are the faithful. We want the remnant. That's who we want is the remnant. Now, if God blesses and there are salvations and there are others who come, then that's according to the will of God. God can do that, but it's never going to be thousands upon thousands upon thousands. Right, this is just uh, the way it is, and that should be fine. What we should be content with is the will of God. What God gives, 
we all we can do is preach the word of Christ. Be faithful, preach the word of God, and if people don't want it, then that's fine. The ones who do want it will come to us, and the ones that don't want it can go to Life Church or any other church that they want to, okay? Okay, all right. Pressing on. Verse 15. Now, in light of this, in light of 13 and 14, you've got 15 through 23. Right. 15 through 23, which is specifically applied within the context of the church, right? Within the context of the church. So I've mentioned before, righteous versus wicked, few versus many, both in relationship to believers versus idolaters or the wicked or the world, but also in relationship to true believers versus false believers, to true pastors versus false pastors, to true churches versus false churches. Which means then, if there are many false believers out there, then we have to keep our head on a swivel and we have to be on guard and we have to be looking to make sure that we don't fall in with those who are false and who are unbelieving, right? We want to be a part of the 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Bell, but we don't want to be a part of the many disciples who no longer walked with Christ, who turned away and withdrew from him. We don't want to follow a multitude in doing evil. That's what they did. They all left and no doubt they all take solace and uh, they, they are all able to congratulate themselves and have some justification for their walking away from Christ because, look, everyone else is doing it as well. And these are all good people and they all think that he's crazy. So we're okay in doing what we're doing. We want to be a part of the 7,000. We don't want to be with those who withdraw and no longer walk with him. And there are many false prophets that have gone out into the world. So we have to test the spirits to see whether or not they are from God because there are going to be many false churches, many false pastors, many false believers, and we have to know what to look for so that we have discernment and we don't fall in with those who turn away from the Lord. 15, verse 15. Beware of the false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will know them by their fruits. Grapes are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor figs from thistles, are they? So every good tree bears good fruit, but the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Right, again, in light of 13 to 14, there are going to be many false churches and many false prophets false prophets or false pastors, right? Either way, both of them are true. And Jesus says here, you have to beware of them. You cannot trust every single person who claims to be a teacher, a pastor, a prophet, to have a word from God, who claims to be a godly man. Everyone does that. Every teacher, every Christian teacher, there's no one going around telling everyone I'm a false teacher, right? I want you to go to hell, right? Don't listen to me. They don't do that at all. They tell you, no, you need to listen to me. I've got insight. I've got special insight. I can help you out. I can tell you things that no one else can tell you. And I will tell you those things if you give me some of your money, right? If you buy my book, if you do this or that, come to my conference for $50, then I'll tell you, actually, wait, I don't want to undersell these guys, $250, right? That's what they charge, not 50. That would be too cheap. This is what they do, all right? So he's saying, Beware of false prophets. A false prophet is never going to announce to you 
that he is a false prophet. He's not going to do that. And there are going to be many of them, many false prophets in contrast to the true prophets. Isn't that what we saw earlier with Micaiah? Wasn't there 400 false prophets all prophesying uniformly to the king that it's going to go well with you? And only one true prophet who was speaking the truth? What about with Elijah at the Mount Carmel? Wasn't that the case with him as well? Many false prophets with, and then only Elijah who was speaking the truth. So this is the way it's going to be. And we must be vigilant. We must be on guard. That's what he says here. Beware, right? When do you, you say beware when there's danger, when there's something precarious, dangerous that is at stake. Beware of false prophets. Why do we have to beware of false prophets? Where will a false prophet send you? He'll send you to hell. And if you listen to him and you follow him, both of you are going to go to hell together. So that's what's at stake for us, for our families, for our children, for our grandchildren. We don't want our children and grandchildren, our families going to hell. We don't want to go to hell ourselves. So we better make sure that we're not listening to false prophets. And Jesus tells us how we can identify them. And we have to. And if there's a hundred people and 99 of them are false prophets, well, then so be it. We have to say it. Even though people will say, you're so narrow-minded, right? If, if people don't agree with you on everything, you, you say they're all unbelievers. We've, I've heard all these things. People will say it over and over and over again. But if a hundred times the people are wrong, then you have to just say it all the time. Isn't this what happened with Micaiah, 1 Kings 22? Yeah. He only speaks evil of me. He never says anything good. Well, what good is there to say about Ahab? Right. There's nothing good to say about this man or Jezebel. They're wicked. They're unbelievers, right? They're committing sin all the time. There's nothing good to say. So you can't hold it against him for only speaking evil. And he's not speaking evil in a malicious way. He's speaking true against him. He's speaking evil against him in a true sense. You are an evil man, but there's nothing good with him. Well, if there's nothing good in the churches and what's going on in popular Christianity, it's not being uh, narrow-minded and uh, bitter and harsh, uh, right? And we're carping all the time. We're nitpicking here and there. No, that's not the case at all. If it's true, then it's true. We just have to say it. We just have to say it. Okay, all right. Beware, beware. Hell is on the line. This is what is at stake. We're dealing with life and death. Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. Okay, this is why this is so important. 10.24. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a slave above his master. It is enough for the disciple to become like his teacher and the slave like his master. If they have called the head of the house Beelzebub, how much more will they malign the members of his household? Here, Jesus is giving this principle in terms of the righteous, right? That's how he's applying it here. A disciple is not above the teacher. In this context, Jesus is the teacher and the disciples are the disciples. Jesus is the master and they are the slaves. Well, if they treat the master, if they treat the teacher in this way, with such harshness, with such persecution, right? Typically, if there's a master of the house and there's slaves in the house, 
an outsider will have more respect for the master than they do for the slave because the slave has a lower position. But if they're even doing this to the master of the house, to the teacher, then they're going to do it even more to the slave and to the disciple, right? right? In here, the disciple is not above his teacher, but rather he becomes like his teacher and the slave becomes like his master, whether for good or for evil. If the teacher, if the master is a good teacher and a good master, then the slave will be a good slave and a good disciple. But if the teacher is a false teacher, then what's going to be true of the disciple? He's going to be a false disciple, right? He's going to be, there's a correspondence between the teacher and the disciple. If the teacher is false, then he will produce false converts. He will produce false disciples. This is the way it is. So that's why we have to stay away from these people, right? And we cannot fall under their spell because they will send us to hell. Matthew 15. Matthew 15. Verse 12. Matthew 15, 12. The disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this statement? Now notice that. This is Jesus' disciples. And what are they doing to him? They're, they're telling him to tap the brakes. Right? Don't be so outspoken. Right? Don't you know you offended the Pharisees when you said the, the things that you said? Right? You don't want to go around offending people. You don't want to go around having a bad reputation. Right? Isn't that what they're doing? They're coming to him in this way saying, do you not know that you offended the Pharisees when you said these things about them? But then notice how he responds. But he answered and said, every plant which my heavenly father did not plant shall be uprooted. Let them alone. Means I don't care. (laughs) I don't care if they're offended. Let them alone. They are blind guides of the blind. And if a blind man guides a blind man, both will fall into a pit. They are blind guides of the blind, spiritually blind. They are spiritually blind and they guide other spiritually blind people. And both of them, both the guide and the follower are going to fall into a pit. And what is the pit that they will fall into? It's the pits of hell. So if we follow a blind man, a spiritually blind man, then we're going to go to hell with him. So we don't want to do that, right? We don't want to do do such things. 23, Matthew 23 and verse 15. 23, 15. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte. And when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. So there, Their converts are twice as much a son of hell as they are, right? Typically, the disciple, the proselyte, is a true believer in the false teaching, right? This is like um, the difference between a malicious communist and a stupid communist, okay? The malicious ones, like Pelosi, 
the Clintons, Obama, they know communism doesn't work. They know socialism doesn't work. They're doing it for what reason? For money, for money and power. They're not true believers in the system because they've got 10 mansions here and there. So they don't believe in socialism, but their converts, the Antifa thugs, the, the uh, impressionable young people at college, they're true believers in it, right? And they're the ones who are vigilant, who are violent, right? And who do these things. They're more zealous for the false ideology than their teachers, right? They don't really believe it, but these people do. That's what he means when he says, you make them twice as much a son of hell as you yourselves are. Well, but at the end of the day, both of them are what? Sons of hell. Meaning they're going to go to hell. They're going to go to hell because they are blind guides, hypocrites. Whoever follows them will go to hell. That's why Jesus says, beware of the false prophets. You have to beware of them. You have to be on guard against them because this is what is at stake. Now, why are they so dangerous? Notice, who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. They come to you in sheep's clothing. A sheep being a very mild, gentle, meek creature. A sheep being one of the terms, one of the images used to describe the flock of God, the true believers. So they come in sheep's clothing. They outwardly appear to be very righteous. Outwardly, they appear to be one of us. They look like us. They talk like us. They, say, they do the same things that we do. So outwardly, in some ways, they conform to what we are. But inwardly, what are they like? They're a ravenous wolf. And a ravenous wolf is a very dangerous creature, especially to sheep, right? So they, we are sheep. They come to us like sheep. But inwardly, they're ravenous wolves. And what do they want to do to us? They want to devour us. They want to devour us and send us to hell. They want to exploit us in this life and then send us to hell in the life to come. And this is the way they appear. That's why they're so dangerous because they do not identify themselves as false teachers. The wolf in sheep's clothing doesn't come in and announce to everyone that he's really a wolf and I'm here to kill all of you. He doesn't do that at all. He pretends to be one of us. They are spies they sneak in, they come in unaware to spy out our freedom in Christ. This is what they do, and they seek to bring us back into slavery and into bondage to sin. Right? That's what they want to do. They themselves love sin. They have an insatiable appetite for sin, and they want to come in and exploit us and cause us to go after sin with them right? so that we all sin and go to hell together. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. Second Corinthians chapter 11, verse 12. It says, but what I am doing, I will continue to do so that I may cut off opportunity from those who desire an opportunity to be regarded just as we are in the matter about which they are boasting. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, workers, 
disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it is not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. So here, these men, he calls them false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. They pretend, they take on the disguise, the look of an apostle of Christ. And he says, this should not be surprising to us because even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. He has this appearance of being an angel of light, but he's not really an angel of light. In reality, he is an angel of darkness. He is a demon, a false demon of darkness. So it shouldn't surprise us that the servants of Satan, which are these false teachers, that they would also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. They appear this way, but their end will correspond to their deeds, right, to their deeds. So this is the way it's going to be. And it's always been this way and it'll always be that way. Now, if it's so dangerous, if it's so precarious, then how are we going to know? How will we be able to discern, right, between a true teacher, a true prophet, and a false prophet, a true pastor, and a false pastor, a true church, and a false church, right? Isn't this very important for us to do? Well, it's very important because if we don't do it, we're going to go to hell. So how are we going to be able to discern these things? We'll have to pick that up next week, okay? Because we don't have time. We don't have time to, to get through all this. See, that's a cliffhanger. I'm leaving you there. Wetting your appetite so that you come back next week. So, yes, yeah, so uh, the short answer is by their fruit. You'll know them by their fruit. That's the way that we have to be able to distinguish them, which means then that we need to know what to look for. What is the fruit that we look for to determine a true teacher between a false teacher? And we have to have discernment. We can't be naive. We can't be gullible. We can't be double-minded. We can't be like a wave of the ocean tossed to and fro by various winds of doctrine. We have to be stable and we have to understand and know what is true so that we can discern when we see a counterfeit, when we see someone who is false. And we'll look at multiple different things that we can look at to identify whether someone is true or false. Um, but we'll have to pick that up uh, next week because we wouldn't be able to get through it tonight. Okay, so we'll stop there. We got a few minutes for uh, questions.